Greetings from Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble, and today we welcome back, from all the way up in the Keweenaw Peninsula, Tom Wright, manager of the historic Quincy Mine Company. Uh, greetings, Tom. Good morning, Chris. Yeah, thanks for joining us again. That was a great segment last time. Oh, it's my pleasure. So last November, we started our tour. Uh, we started out in the Hoist House, and, and then from there we moved outside. I think you mentioned it would not be OSHA-friendly for us to transit ourselves down the way that the miners did back in the old days. So we went down the mountainside on an above-ground trail tram, a, a rail tram uh, that you drove to get us to the underground section of the tour. That's correct. Our Cogwheel tram was put in service in 1996. Uh, we started doing underground tours at Quincy in 1993. And because of the popularity, even back then, it was obvious that carpooling or taking caravans down through Hancock's East End, historic East End residential district, was, was not a viable way to do it. So we got a grant and raised money and put in the Cogwheel tram which in itself, a lot of people come up just to ride that when they can. It's one of three cogwheel trams in the United States. One at Pikes Peak, Colorado, people are familiar with that. An old one at Mount Washington, New Hampshire, and then ours. They're, they're fairly common in Europe, but it's a good way to get a, a tractor, a wheeled vehicle up and down the hill. Uh, we're, we're approaching a 33% grade at times. Even most four-wheel drives might have a hard time going up and down that hill. So that gets people down. As you'll recall, it's a walking tour. We have full accessibility, but it is a walking tour. That gives people time to look at the geology. We spend a lot of time talking about the very unique geology of the Keweenaw. And it's just, it was a beautiful view. And it, was, it was fun. It was fun going down the train, coming back up also, too. And then we entered what was, uh, that was the first exploratory tunnel we went in? No, they had several exploratory tunnels. Um, generally, the, the exploratory efforts were, were, were they, they would do pits, dig pits, and try to expose the vein at the surface or dig shallow shafts. Abbots are a handy mine feature. They're usually not used for haulage or to get in and out of the mine. They're usually to drain water or to provide access. Or in, in Quincy's case, when the Abbot was first punched through in 1895, they had a interest in seeing if there are other copper deposits, uh, other loads, somewhere there in Quincy Hill. And, and the only way to do it back then, and even today sometimes, the only way to do it is to dig a hole. So they ended up driving a 2,000-foot tunnel to connect to the workings underground to see if there was copper. Unfortunately, they didn't find any, but they did have a, another use for it, which was to set up a drainage system underground and drain all the water that was coming in through surface infiltration instead of letting it go to the bottom of the mine, and then you've got to bail it out or pump it out, which costs you money, of course. They managed to contain the water in the upper levels, levels and drain it out through that seventh level at it. And that's, that's where we were with the seventh level? We were on the seventh level. There were a couple other adits, which is why we refer to it as the east adit. There were some other levels adits up to the third level uh, to the west of that one. And, you know, Michigan has, has long been a major draw for, for immigrants. And you mentioned um, Calumet and uh, the Keweenaw were kind of world-known people, people coming here, searching out a, a better way of life and, and possible riches. And that's been going on since the French voyageurs first came here to harvest furs in the early 1600s. Uh, who were the first miners at the Quincy Mine, and, and where did they come from? Uh, to be honest, the first miners at Quincy Mine probably came from Asia. 
the historic mining that was was here. If if we subscribe to the theory of people moving across the Bering Street through the, the land bridge at that time. So I'm talking about the, the, the first people or Native Americans, as some refer to them. They were mining up here possibly as early as 7,500 years ago. Right. You know, before the common era. In, in modern history, you, did, you mentioned the voyagers, and that is indeed who was up here paddling their boats, looking for furs, looking for other riches, the, the, the lumber perhaps. The metal reserves were, were talked about and known. We have it anecdotally that uh, the reason Michigan owns Isle Royale and not Canada, it's certainly a whole lot closer to Canada, is because Benjamin Franklin had heard about the copper up here. And knowing that we would need copper, we didn't have a source at that time. Uh, we were getting it from Britain, but that relationship soured at some point. So we needed a source of copper. And Ben Franklin, as shrewd as he was, made sure that we got our oil in those copper reserves. It did take a while. People found the copper. But if you'll recall, geology in the early 1800s is a fairly new science, and it took them a while to figure out where these copper reserves were. It was an underground lottery for all the people that were looking for it. The people started coming here. Uh, the Cornish, notably in Cornwall, England, south uh, western part of the, the country, worldwide reputation for mining. Uh, they've been working tin and copper mines, coal mines in Cornwall, England since the Roman era. These guys had experience. Uh, There's a popular saying at that time, if there's a hole in the earth, look down it. You'll see a Cornishman looking, looking back at you. Good <laughs> reputation. And then we start looking at other events in Europe. We have the, the Irish diaspora, uh, the potato famine. These people are looking for work wherever they can find it. Um, people coming from the hard rock mining regions of Italy, northern Finland to some degree. So it kind of depends on what was happening in Europe to some degree, these mo movements of people coming here. And I, I think you, you mentioned that they were paid by the amount of uh, material they moved. And um, so sometimes coming across the large chunks of pure copper that Michigan's known for, that, that wasn't a good thing. It's not that they're paying, getting paid by, by the amount that they move, per se. The Cornish developed several systems for payment, and these are basically an incentivized production system. There's one that is by the quality of the, of the ore called Tutwork, which was very popular in Cornwall, at least for the mining companies or the copper smelters, not so much for men. It's hard for them to make money. Here, they would be on a contract system, and if you're opening up a tunnel underground, it's just like a contractor comes and bids on the job, you give them specifications. In this case, you want to hold it's five feet wide and seven foot tall, and they'll do it for $10 a foot. And generally, the contract lasted for a month. So if they did 25 feet, they need $250. However, you had to subtract your black powder. You didn't, you have to buy your supplies, right? So black powder, fuses, candles, everything you need to do your work is getting subtracted out of that. And it might be a four-man team that's splitting that $250 after expenses. They do really well, and a lot of them did. They might make $40 or $45 in a month, which was a good living in the 1850s. And uh, socially, um, like in Calumet, they talk about all the different churches 
and I think there was there was like twenty different churches uh, in in the area. Um, are, are they sticking like amongst themselves, like the Italians, the Cornish, the uh, the, the, the the groups of, of, of immigrants that are coming here? They're, they're kind of sticking to themselves uh, socially, to a large degree, and, and that also bespeaks to the the wealth of this area that these fabulous fabulous churches and many still remain St. Joseph's and Lake Linden, uh, St. Paul the Apostle up in Calumet. A lot of these churches remain and, and it was spare no expense. So you had you had German Lutherans, Finnish Lutherans, Italian Catholics, German Catholics, Methodists, Protestants, and by and large, they kept to themselves. They put up a church and filled it with people and gave their services in whatever language, whether it was Italian or Finnish. Um, in 1900, Calumet had the largest Serbian population in the United States. Mm. Unrest in Europe was pushing people here. Um, eventually, a lot of that population migrated to Pittsburgh. But when you look at the, the, the melting pot that this place was, and, and to me, it's, it's, it's significant. Maybe it's not so much with the parents sometimes, the Finns mixing with the, the Cornish or whatnot. But remember, these kids are going to school with each other. They're growing up together. They're going to work in the mines together. I think that's when the, the real ideal of the American melting pot starts to take place up here. Yeah, and, and, and prior to that whole melting thing, um, they, they all had their own newspapers up there too, right? It was like tons of newspapers. All kinds of newspapers. And... Especially the Finnish, uh, and, and anybody that's Finnish is going to hear me butcher this, which is Tuomais, T-Y-O-M-I-E-S, which, which means working man, I believe. Um, they published newspapers that went out to the, the Iron Range and the mining districts up here um, and talking about uh, workers' workers' rights, workers, the working conditions for men up here, all that kind of stuff. So this was... A hotbed of not necessarily unionism per se, but certainly a hotbed of workers' rights and, and a lot of the things that we even talk about today. Yeah, and we're going to come back to that subject a little bit in, in a couple of minutes here because that, that gets real interesting too as the as the uh, advancements in technology kind of went forward, and then of course uh, the you know prospects of unionization. But jumping back to one, one of the rooms that interests me, the two places that interest me the most, and that was. Uh, there's some very small uh, offshoot tunnels when we first went in that in that main shaft there. We were, we were in on that tour that day, and it's real tight and claustrophobic in there. And it's 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 it, you imagine these guys in there swinging hammers at their at their brother or best friend's hand with a single candle uh, to illuminate the whole area there. And um, I mean, it, it, this is difficult work. And you, and you said the Cornish probably were some of the best at, at, at getting in there and, and being profitable and and, um, and productive. Is that is that right? Yes, they, they had the skills. Of course, the other miners uh, that came in started to learn those skills as well. But they had been doing it for centuries. I mean, mining is not anything new in the 1800s. How they're doing it has bas had basically been static since uh, BCE. The earliest copper mines, say, in, in Cyprus or, or, or some of the other areas in the Mideast, or even in, in, in Europe, certainly. So these guys had the techniques, they had the, they had the know-how. They could read the rock and know how to exploit it. They could read the rock and know that, you know, it's just not worth going any farther in this direction. You know, the, the war is not getting better. It's petering out. 
They could read the rock, especially with the faulting we have up here, the geological processes, and figure out, we need to go this way. We need to go east, not west. Uh, we should hit it. Interestingly enough, when the Michigan School of Mines, founded in 1885, which is now known as Michigan Technological University, when they started sending trained geologists and engineers underground here, a lot of those engineers deferred to these Cornishmen. The Cornishmen knew what they were doing. And you know, the young engineer might say, well, I think we should go this way. And the Cornish captain would say, well, boss, I think, I think we should go this way. And a lot of times those engineers deferred to those bosses and said, I think you're right. We should go that way. And that was super cool. You you knew so much about the, uh, the, the, the rock formations we were looking at. And you were telling us how the stress points were here and uh, the different uh, conditions that would have created those, 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 um, uh, you know, the visible, the visible differences in, in the rock formations within the tunnel. And then, you know, the, one of the rooms that was really great for me too, is you, you, there's a classroom, you mentioned, you mentioned the, the, uh, the, the engineering students and the mining students, but you, you have a classroom under, underground there. Yes, we do. That dates back to the time Michigan Tech took over the mine as, a, as an experimental mine, as a learning mine, starting in 1975. So as part of their mining engineering program, which was under the civil engineering program at Michigan Tech, they were drilling and blasting underground. Students were learning all about the rock and how to do it the work cycles uh, in building or constructing a mine. So the students would go down there, take their lectures, and then uh, step right out into the lab and do, do your practical. Uh, Michigan Tech still is involved with Quincy Mine. They are doing their drilling and, and blasting classes every other year, roughly. They come down there and do some practical work. There are also research studies going on. These are important research studies, geological studies. There's a water study that's been started up. So. Michigan Tech is still, and rightfully so, involved with Quincy Mine. And the other room, the, the last section that really fascinated me was, and it's illuminated, you have come some lights down there uh, showing, it was probably like maybe 50, 60 feet up in the air on an incline uh, or an angle of maybe like 45 degrees. And it was just, a, it was, you know, you could see where they had mined this pretty cavernous thing there. And you imagine those guys standing up there with no safety equipment. Again, illuminated with a candle or so, swinging that heavy hammer. That, that, that part was fascinating to me also. Yeah, what you're talking about is the stope, S-T-O-P-E. And, and, and that space was, was the vein. That's what is now what's left of the Pawabic vein, Pawabic load. And what's remarkable about that stope that we're in or that visitors can see is that dates back to the 1860s. 1860s. 1860s, yes. Uh, we've got provenance on that, um, on that particular space. And, and that is by no means the largest space underground. There were huge spaces hewn out of the rock underground. But that space in particular was being done all by hand, no machines, candles for light. Uh, the men are wearing leather-soled boots. Anybody's ever been out walking in leather-soled shoes when it's wet or slippery out, you'll know that's not a good idea. They did, however, pound metal studs into the bottom of them. That's the early hobnail boot. So the boots would grip a little bit and also so they wouldn't wear out on that, that, that rock. So it, it's, it's all being done by hand there. They're using black powder for blasting. They're having to light their fuses and climb down ladders or climb up ladders. And that's 110. Uh, the, the, the vertical distance in that space is closer to 100, 110 feet. It's an amazing space underground. And, and this, is, this is a dangerous job. 
It's a very dangerous job. Uh, the casualty rate at Quincy, and this is fairly reflective of the district, the casualty rate at Quincy approaches 33%. It's one out of three men got killed or injured there. And when I say injured, I'm talking serious, debilitating, life-changing industries. The death toll at, at Quincy, as far as we know, is around 253 men. We say at least 253 men. The early days, nobody kept records. Also, the uh, definition of a mine fatality varies. Uh, and basically, in short, if you didn't die in the mine, it was not considered a mine fatality. So if you got hurt and died a few days later, all the men that succumbed to what they call miners' consumption, which is either silicosis or black lung disease, none of these men are on the tolls. So it's a dangerous, dangerous profession. Over the course of your career, you could expect to get some injuries. Over the course of your career, you could expect to lose somebody you knew, a father, a brother, a nephew, a cousin, a distant relation that's working the mines down South Range. It was a, it was a dangerous job. And like you mentioned, too, we're not even talking about the guy who just breaks his hand and keeps working all day long or you know, um, breaks a foot. Uh, these are, these are major ca casualties before they even made the records, probably. That's correct. There's, there's no paid time off or there's no medical leave or anything like that. And if you've got a family to support and you're not working, you're not making money. So, so the, the lesser injuries, they'll figure a way to do it. They'll, they'll shrug it off or bandage it up or, or whatever they need to do so that they can get back to work. And at one point, you had us down there. You, 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 you had everybody uh, kind of look one direction. You turned all the lights off. And, and we're talking not dark. We're talking pitch black, like no light source. No light source. It was interesting. We had a uh, National Guard unit doing some training down there last fall, and they came in with their super-duper night vision goggles, 20 to 30,000 power, right? And they couldn't see with those with the lights off, so I had to turn a light on so their night vision goggles would work. There is no light down there when you're underground, and, and that could just be a disaster if something put out your light. If you're doing it with candles, you're going to have to use a flint and steel to get it lit again. Yeah, you had this. You, you, I actually answered the question right. You're like, what do you do when you're sitting here in the pitch black and your candles out? And um, one of the things you would have resorted to is you said flint, but also possibly a tinderbox if you were lucky enough. Well, yeah, you've got your tinder with you, but this is a hot, sweaty job, so you best keep that, that dry. There's supposed to be a company candle at the shaft landing underground. There's supposed to be a company candle. It's in a little box. It's protected from gusts of wind and whatnot or water. But some events underground could maybe put out the company candle. So then, again, you're left to your resources of using flint and steel. Matches, not the 1880s. Nope. Lucifer lights, and they were expensive and not necessarily always reliable, especially if you get them wet. So, so there's just all sorts of things can, that can make for a bad day when you're underground. And, and then we started touching this earlier too: the advancements of technology and the move towards unionization and safer rules and less work hours for the guys. Sometimes that didn't actually make the job better. When you started up the water and the air drills, I mean, we're talking loud, and this is when men were allowed to now kind of work by themselves. Um, which isn't a great thing, though, because, again, you lose your light source, and with all that noise down there, who's going to hear you if you, you have an accident and get injured? I mean, before they're working at least with a group of friends or family members, and now they're kind of segregated, and, and that man, when you kick that machine on, that was loud. In mechanization, 
just turn the area on its head. Uh, the mining companies to be profitable, and especially for the mining companies to compete with the, the up-and-coming mines out west, the Anaconda mine in Montana, the other copper mines out west, they had to get they had to get efficient. And they've been trying different drilling technologies starting around 1880, but the, the drills were beasts, absolutely beasts. If you can imagine two men or even three men trying to wrestle an almost 300-pound piece of equipment and get it locked in and get it safe, they just weren't making any headway. The mining companies knew what they wanted, and they wanted a drill that one man could handle, and they wanted it to be light and portable. In other words, somewhere at least 100 pounds or so. And, and the technology evolved rapidly, um, but the miners basically fought the one-man drill tooth and nail. They could see where it was going. Instead of having small teams of men, two or three men down there, you're going to be by yourself on this machine. And again, it's a sparsely populated work environment underground. At times, you might be the only person there, perhaps. And so if something goes wrong, who knows how long it'll be before someone finds you, right? One man drill was a major source of, of discontent in this district. But more so than that, it was the reduction of jobs. Um, it was also uh, the men, especially the skilled men, were now getting relegated into just the position of being a laborer. They were no longer working as contractors, a source of pride of being a contractor and in control of your fate, but you're just a day laborer going down and getting the job done. So there's all sorts of things going on. At the same time, these mining companies were facing incredible economic pressure, mostly because of the Western mines. Um, so they had to make it work somehow. Wages were suppressed. Um, unionism was a bad word. James McNaughton, the legendary James McNaughton from Calumet, said, grass will go grow green in the streets of Michigan before I let a union man into my mines. Um, so by 19... 10 or so, things were getting out of hand. The strike of 1913 was a bitter, dark, divisive chapter in our history. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's still talked about. Here we are 110 years later, and the strike of 1913 is still a subject in, 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 for, for writers, and, and we're still trying to understand everything about it. In short, the area was ripe for it. Uh, wages had been suppressed. Men were still working 10 to 12 hours a day. Um, even the skilled men were only making maybe two and a half, maybe three dollars a day if they're really lucky. Um, you know, out west they're working for eight hours a day and making four or five dollars a day. They could afford it, we couldn't. So there's tremendous economic pressure. And, and then when you look at other societal pressures, we're coming out of all the excesses of the Gilded Age, the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts, Sinclair, Carnegie's. We're starting to have a more uh, a more progressive look at laborers and the role of laborers in society, but not in our minds up here. So, so there's a tremendous amount of pressure, and it all came to a head in the strike of 1913. Yeah, and that volatility, uh, un unfortunately, I think it, it contributed to, and this this is a terrible portion of Michigan's uh, history, but the uh, the Italian Opera House tragedy. Yes, uh, the, the, the tragedy at the Italian Hall. That was December 25th, 1913. Big Annie Clements, 
who should be someday in the National Labor, Labor Hall of Fame, I think. Big Annie was a labor organizer, amazing woman. And she and some some of the other women's auxiliaries were having a Christmas party for, for the children of striking miners. Uh, a number of a lot of Finns and Serbians up there in Calumet. It was on the second floor of a commercial building. The AMP was on the first floor, and there was a meeting hall up space. And somebody ostensibly yelled fire. And in the ensuing panic, people started going down a very steep staircase. We don't know exactly what happened. There's various accounts for it. Uh, as an interpreter, I have to walk middle ground mm -hmm. and call it a tragedy, it, which it certainly is. But in the ensuing panic, 72 mostly women and children lost their lives that day. If we could just take a moment of silence out of respect for those that lost their lives and their families on that terrible day in December of 1913. There were other bits of violence, quite a bit of violence uh, concerned with the strike as well. The mining companies brought in a lot of thugs from sh Chicago agencies. There were lives lost, the shootings in Seberville. There was one instance where a woman got jailed because she walked out of her yard. Uh, at one point in the strike, the women were very active. And it was assumed that since she walked out of her yard, she was up to no good. She was put in jail. And the husband, when he came up from underground, went to get her out. Magistrate refused, I believe. On the way home from the walk, one of the child, one of the children that he brought with him, uh, succumbed to exposure. So it was it was an event that absolutely seared the community conscience, even to this day. There were hearings going on in Washington. There was national attention, maybe even international attention, put on this strike. Yeah, and, and, and the, I think the worst thing about the Calumet tragedy, obviously the loss of life, but um, it happened right at Christmas time. As far as tours that you're you're doing, I noticed when I was leaving Houghton, you guys have some property, or Hancock, you have some property down by the waterfront there too. Uh, that is the smelter that you're talking about. That's actually owned by the Keweenaw National Historic Park Advisory Commission. We partner with them in providing tours down there. That smelter is another gem in the industrial archaeological world. It is the probably the only extant smelter in the world of that vintage, built in 1898. So just like the Quincy mine, it's a it's a way to look into the past, learn how people were doing things. You know, we, we tend to think we're so sophisticated. But when we look back at what they were doing, assaying metal back then, they don't have all the fancy equipment and computers we have today. So the smelter is another snapshot into the past. In the summer, from Labor Day to Memorial Day, or Memorial Day to Labor Day, I should say, this, we bundle the smelter tours. We're trying to get more interest in the smelter. So anybody that does the complete mine tour at Quincy can go to do the smelter tour as well. Otherwise, as a standalone, the smelter tours are $10. But we also have other resources. The Keweenaw National Historic Park is a flagship, in my opinion, a flagship park in the United States National Park System. As a historic park, they have a wide-ranging amount of areas. We're a participant with them. The Mineral Museum is a participant. Delaware Mine, there's, there's a number of heritage sites under the umbrella of the National Historic Park that help tell the story up here. The, the A.E. Seaman Mineralogical Museum, or Mineral Museum over at Michigan Tech, this is a small museum but it is a world-class museum. What I tell people is go visit the Mineral Museum, see what got people fired up, see what fired their imaginations, what they were bringing out from underground, 
and then come over to Quincy and see how it's being done. For people that like to do this sort of thing, go down to the Adventure Mine. Matt Portfleet, the owner, does a splendid job of this tour. You can spend five or six under hours underground. They'll feed you a pasty. They put you in a climbing harness to do some rappelling. So if you like crawling underground, that's the place to go. Delaware Mine is a self-guided tour. Again, a little bit different part of the story than we tell, but it all links together. The visitor center up in Calumet has an amazing, just a wonderful three-story building devoted primarily to the social milieu up here. A lot of information on the strike. And of course, you can go off a couple blocks and go to the memorial for the Italian Hall tragedy. Yeah, we made our way through Calumet. We also did the uh, Mineral mineral Museum, which was spectacular. And then we drove around the smelter down there. And that's definitely a tour I want to do on my next visit up there. Uh, When does your season officially start? Our season never ends, actually. Officially, we start doing regularly scheduled tours. This year will be the weekend of April 21st. We do Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. First week of June, we go to seven days a week. But we do tours on an on-demand basis as well. Uh, So we do tours during the winter. I had the, um, they're from Grand Rapids, the Bulldogs hockey team from Grand Rapids. Proud to say that the Bulldogs team from Hancock prevailed. (laughs) But they came up in January for a hockey tournament, and we took them on a special tour that included snowshoeing and pasties underground just like the old days. Sounds good so to me. if you're interested, if somebody's interested in doing tours, give us a call. Uh, we'll do, we can arrange something for them. Yeah, and how is the best best way for people to find you? They can call 906-482-3101. That's our gift shop number. And they can find you online probably also. And we have a booking system online as well. So if they want to start booking their tours for the summer, they can go to QuincyMind.com and book their tour, have their tickets paid, have their waivers done, and be all set to roll. People that come up here, I'm sure you've experienced this as well. There is so much to do up here. Remember, we have Michigan's tallest waterfall. Douglas Houghton Falls, right? Been there. So you've got beautiful waterfall, which is also right on the Keweenaw fault line. So you get to put your hands on billion-year-old geology, literally. Same thing underground. We have a number of just wonderful, small ecological biomes. Uh, Michigan Nature Association, uh, other nature conservancies uh, that you can learn about and, and they're small hikes. You can see a very special pitcher planet, one of them. Bay Degree, which is a fabulous hike and a, a view of Lake Superior. And then the uh, descent, depending on which you climb it, um, you're pretty much feeling like a velociraptors you're you're in big ferns it just seems like it goes back to the jurassic or the cretaceous area so there's there's a wealth of information um personally i have visitors come up here for for quote vacation <laughs> and after three or four days they're ready to leave so they can get some rest <laughs> and, and again what, what a gr- what great uh, uh uh segment this has been um if, if you if you have not had a chance to visit michigan's keweenaw peninsula i strongly urge you to make the trek up there this summer anytime this year and and make sure and take a tour of one of the places tom has described in this the segment and, and especially uh, the famous quincy mine um can't thank you enough tom uh, for joining us today i'm your host christopher struble Special thanks to Tom Wright again for joining us today for part two of the Keweenaw, which is our first two episodes of season three on Tales of Northern Michigan's Past.